Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Eric and Christy. Appreciate you both. Uh, thanks so much for uh, uprooting your family, for being away from home, away from comforts, uh, so that people might see Jesus in you. And we're, uh, we're praying for you, with you. Uh, I want to mention something uh, just before we, we dive into to the Bible. I just want to say that if, if you've been moved by this week, and uh, hopefully you, you really have uh, prayed for those who have experienced loss, I just want to I just want to ask you to maybe examine and, and think about uh, the ways that, that your life is actually committed to reconciliation that actually crosses boundaries that have been, in a lot of ways, systemically um, constructed in our culture. Uh, it's not, not a time to, to just to only to pray, but to really re-examine and to live life differently. We cannot, as a church, we need to double down on our commitment to be reconciled. We cannot declare to the world a message of reconciliation without also admitting that in many ways the church has completely failed to love people who are different than us. We are, we are segregated still in a lot of, in a lot of ways, and I, I want us to, to really think about it, ask God to help us. Uh, if, you are, if you don't know exactly what that looks like, be, be praying over the next few months, and we want to be committed as a church to not only have a message of inclusion, um, but then to betray it with our lives. We don't want that to be the case. I uh, really want to ask God to do a work in us, uh, not let this moment go by. I just felt like I really wanted to say that to you. I don't know what it's going to look like for you, um, but I think it's evident, and the first place that we can start is to say that it's been true. We're not good at this, and um, we need to be better. If you have a Bible, you could take it out and uh, go to Genesis chapter 3. Go to Genesis chapter 3. I know it's, uh, it's warm. We are in the... Uh, the dog days of summer, and we are also in the days of the part is coming, it's going to be fixed, we promise. Uh, it's out of our hands, and we have a landlord experience that's going on, and so um, we're trying to be patient with it. But I think uh, there are people here, even here, like at six this morning, messing around with things, and we're hoping that by next Sunday, uh, you have to bring a parka. So plan for that. Uh, I don't know what you call it here, one of those hats that you pull on. Um, Canadian, Canadians call it a toque. But uh, you might want to bring one, just tuck it in your, your purse and bring it for next week. That's the hope that we have anyway. And don't punch me when it's false. We're in Genesis chapter 3 because uh, we are walking through the statement of faith that we're proposing this summer. This is article number 4. We're looking at the fall. And so, yes, you've come, children with fathers, fathers with doting children. You have come this morning to a lecture on sin. <laughs> like, right? Yes, you've come to a lecture on sin. I'm going to try to move quickly through this. We don't need to belabor the point. Anyone who has looked around the world has probably asked the question, what is wrong with us? I don't know how you can watch the news for more than 10 minutes. I don't know how you can watch devastating, horrible evil not only acted out, but apparently present in hearts of people, and not say, what is wrong with us? We cannot have an answer for the world in Jesus Christ unless there's been a question asked, and the question is, what is wrong with us? The answer to that question, what is wrong with us, is going to determine whether or not the gospel is good news. That's it, full stop. The gospel is only good news. Jesus dying for sins is only a good news if you feel the weight of bad news first. That's just all there is to it. There is no Christian gospel without being very clear about sin. We want to be clear about it. 
It's tempting in a million ways to gloss it over, to justify it. We call it a bunch of different things. I make mistakes every once in a while. No one's perfect. He was a bit confused or deranged or, I don't know, that seemed broken or messy. All those words are fine, but let's just remember that they're all descriptors and adjectives of one major problem, sin. That in the hearts of all of us, we long to be our own boss. We are not God, and we hate it. That's the basis, that's the starting block of our faith. And so we're going to read through Genesis chapter 3. That shouldn't become any shock to you. Not really breaking new ground here. You wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe it. My pastor did a sermon on sin. It's from Genesis 3. Right? This is not new. This is very early in Scripture. God has taken great pains to describe the miraculous wonder of his creation. God spoke and by his breath created black holes and nebula, and molecules, and dinosaurs. You know those really existed? I saw a dinosaur movie last week. I couldn't remember what it was. Maybe you've heard of it. Um, I was one of the top ones of the week. Anyway, those things existed, like for real. And in, the, in God's creation of all that he created, and then took great care to say it was very good in creating image bearers like him, placed them in a garden of perfection. And you know how long it lasts? Page three. That's how long. Page three. You cannot describe the message of the Bible without immediately confronting sin. And so we're going to read through chapter three. I know you know the story. You've heard it or memorized it or seen it in a play somewhere. It was on the felt board when you were a kid. Admit it. You know the story. We want to learn it afresh. Let me read this and then we'll pray. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the garden walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let me take a moment and pray. Father, we ask for eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray that you would be kind, you'd be gracious to us, and more than just giving us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would move in our hearts. We, we see, we feel, we sense the sinfulness of our own hearts, and we certainly see it around us. And I ask that in the midst of seeing and hearing, that we would also have softened hearts, humble hearts to receive from you, to repent well to call sin, sin, and to look to you for our rightness, for being upright before you. I thank you for this morning. Give me words. Give us clarity, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to say just a few simple things about this particular chapter. It's going to all basically come as as a sort of a way to articulate further what we believe in this article of faith. On the back of the worship guide, you'll see it printed. I think it'll be up on the screen as well. This is an article that's just called The Fall, which is an okay name for what happened with Adam and Eve. They lost something. It's just a way to describe what sin does. This is what sin does. It says, We believe that Adam, made in the image of God, distorted that image and forfeited his original blessedness. You see right from the start, words like distorted, forfeited, Not only for himself, but it says for all his progeny. By falling into sin through Satan's temptation. As a result, all human beings are alienated from God. So distorted, forfeited, falling, alienated. They're corrupted in every aspect of their being. For example, physically, mentally, volitionally, volitionally, emotionally, spiritually. And condemned finally and irrevocably to death. Apart from God's own gracious intervention, the supreme need of all human beings is to be reconciled to the God under whose just and holy wrath we stand. The only hope of all human beings is the undeserved love of this same God, who alone can rescue us and restore us to himself. This is not a controversial statement in the history of Orthodox Christianity. That's never been the problem when it comes to sin. We know what is right. We know what is wrong. In many ways, this theological doctrine, you knew before anyone ever articulated it for you. 
You're born into the world and everyone has a sense of right and wrong. You just do. When you were a little kid, you were a master at annoying your brothers. You knew exactly which buttons to push. Your mom said, don't cross this line. You said, I wonder if it would be fun to cross that line. In fact, I think it would be. And then more than that, not only did you know how to sin, but immediately you knew how to cover up the sin. So you knew it was wrong, but you also thought to yourself, it's bad that I did this and I should cover this up. This is innate in all of us. It's innate in all of us. You don't need a doctrinal statement for this. This isn't controversial necessarily. It's putting it into practice and dealing with it. It's the time that you've sinned and done the same thing 47 times in a row. When you find in yourself a powerlessness, when you've been affected by the hurt and the pain of other people, when you live in a place that you say, this is beyond broken, this place is, it's messed up, it's bent inward and wrong, it's in that moment that you say to yourself, what is wrong with us? And it becomes not just a general vague understanding of right and wrong, but you need to say, what is sin and what do I do about it? That is what this doctrinal statement is about. Here's what we learn in this story from Adam and Eve. Right from the beginning, we learn a few things. This is the first thing that we learn. Adam and Eve are responsible. So we're going to see that they're responsible. That's a big deal. You're responsible. When things go wrong, when you're selfish, when I'm selfish, when the world is crazy and rebellious, there's a responsibility for that. We are moral agents. We can't just look around and say someone else did it. We find right away Adam and Eve are responsible. Not only that, they're responsible, but they're accountable and they're held accountable for their sin. God does not just wink at sin. That's one of the ways the I just did a wink like you didn't know what that was. God just doesn't just do that to sin. It's one of the way Bible, the Bible says some people think of God. Oh yeah, he's kind and he's gracious and so he just kind of winks at it. No, not only are they responsible, they're held accountable. They are accountable for their sin And then the last thing that we're going to look at, and this is really the crux of the matter for you, is that Adam and Eve are representative of you. In other words, they sinned and it affected you. And their kind of sin is the same kind of sin that has been going on for the last, oh, I don't know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So the first thing to note is Adam and Eve are responsible. Unlike the other animals and fish and whales or whoever else that he created, Man has a very acute consciousness and they are given moral responsibility. They are responsible in the garden. God says, here's all of the things that you can do. There's trees over here. There's fruit over here. Do not touch this one tree. It's like you're rocking the Whole Foods, right? Everything is available to you. Push your cart anywhere you want. You can eat anything you want. Just throw it in there. $12 loaf of bread. Yes, yours. Get that. Right? Anything you want. Not the Honeycrisp apples, <gasps> you say. Have you had Honeycrisp apple? It's amazing. I listened to a podcast the other day. Back in the day, there were only one kind of apples. Falsely advertised apples at that. They were called Red Delicious. <laughs> right? How was this company not pulled in for false advertising? I do not know. They were red. That part was fine. They were not delicious, and you know it. And there was a man who, in his angst at these apples, actually spent years of his life developing a brand new apple, the Honeycrisp apple. Thousands of trees. It was like tree 1700 or something that he had personally cultivated that he finally found this apple that was better. Honeycrisp apples are like $8 per apple. I would pay 20 They're amazing. 
So there's this one thing, right? There's this one thing, and God does not create Adam and Eve as robots. They have moral responsibility. When we begin to talk about sin and righteousness, we cannot describe a humanity that makes us robotics, automatons in God's universe. We have responsibility. God says, I gave you a command, and I expect that you are going to be responsible to make decisions. In other words, the things that we do matter. That's what we're learning from Adam and Eve. The things that we do matter. It's why the serpent can come, and I'm not sure what to make of this serpent story. I, I, I just don't know. You can ask questions about a talking snake to God when you get there. I don't know how this works. I really don't. It's amazing to me that Eve just launches into a doctrinal debate with the snake. That would not have been my first reaction, right? I hate snakes. We have not yet seen a snake in Tallahassee. Thank you for that. We've not, although I'm pretty sure I could kill one if I saw it. At least I'm telling myself that. I would not react just like, oh, the snake is talking to me. No, I don't think so. The semantics of what God said are different than that. It's something different. I would have thought, like, did I eat a terrible berry over there by the, by the lake? What's in that? Be- no, not going to go there. I would have said, I don't know what's going on. And this chapter is pretty small to gloss over things like the serpent said to Eve. I get that. There's some unanswered questions. But let's not let the details make us miss the point. The point is, is that God gave a command. And the expectation was that Adam and Eve were supposed to take this command and they were responsible for it. What they did mattered. And very quickly, of course, they failed. They both get it wrong. Serpent says, no, God's lying. Eve gets it a little bit wrong. Not only don't eat, but don't touch. Not sure. She falls into temptation. She eats. And then we find out immediately that the second thing is also true. Not only are they responsible, I gave you a command, but God is not a lazy judge. He's not a parent sitting on the couch, not wanting to miss a moment of survivor. One, one and a half, two, if I get to three, young lady, two, two and a seventh, right? Like, he's not a God like this, that when he says, I give you a command, and in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, God is not lazy about sin. You know, we have to understand that. God is not lazy about sin. It matters. And whether you know it or not, even when you confess your sin, Something deep down inside of you thinks like, yeah, but I hope it's not really a big deal. I hope in the end, it's kind of like my parents when they said, go, go clean your room, and they're not going to check. I mean, the football game's on, right? Dad's still waiting for the Jags to win. He's never leaving the couch, right? Oh, Jaguar, right? The point is, the point is God is not lazy. Sin matters to him. And immediately, Eve tries, Adam tries everything he can. He goes to Adam first. Adam is the woman. The woman did that. It was, I, mean, I just, I ate. I might have eaten some fried. It was the woman. He's held accountable. Goes to Eve. It was the serpent. The serpent gave it to me. I took it. I just, I ate it. It was a serpent. She's held accountable. Immediately and swiftly, God takes sin seriously. He says to the serpent, cursed are you. Many people see, even in the beginning of Genesis, in Genesis 16, in the midst of the curse, God can't help but give hope because he's a merciful God. He says, this 
seed of the woman will crush your head. Foreshadowing immediately already that one day through the seed of the woman, God would bring about hope and redemption. But for now, he is judging sin. He says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Now, I don't know if this means that childbearing was painless before, but it's multiplied, at least after this point. I thought, I mentioned it a little bit in the first service, I thought like, hey, this is the great time to make hilarious comments about childbearing and pain and birth. It's a heavy sermon, you know, sin, that's a hard one. And you know what? I think um, this is maybe a sign of wisdom. I'm 35 now. I'm just not going to go there. You know how many jokes you should make about childbearing and the pain of it? Zero. That's what I learned. Zero. It fundamentally changes not only the physical nature of mankind. Adam's going to have pain in working. She's going to have pain in childbearing. But relationships are messed up too. It says at at the end of verse 16, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. This verse has been debated endlessly, but I think basically what it means is the right relating of husband and wife is going to be turned on end. The temptation for the woman is going to be to critique and to condemn and to lord it over and to push over husbands, leading to men being passive and staying back. That's going to be the temptation. I'm not saying it's the always happening. That's the temptation there. And the temptation for men is to say, I'm stronger than you. That sounded sounded more like a Beastie Boys robot album than it did anything else. The temptation is going to be for abuse. The temptation is going to use strength and power, not to lovingly sacrifice and care for a wife, but instead to lord it over her. Physically, sin changed. There was a curse that came. Relationally, curse that came. He says to Adam, because you listened to the voice of your wife, eating of the tree, cursed is the ground because of you. The dirt hates sin. You know that? The earth itself, Romans 8 says, the earth itself groans under the weight of the curse. I think it's safe to say that many, many times that the soil hates sin more than we do. The curse goes all the way to the ground. The very earth is cursed. I think in a sense, it basically means like, hey man, you're going to have to farm now. I grew up on a farm. I would go and work for my grandpa for hours and hours and hours and hours. One time he was going to pay me $3 an hour to work for him. He started to give me the money and my mom interjected and said, no, 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 no. He's your grandson. Just give him something less than that. He doesn't need that. And I was paid one quarter per hour for working in the field. Thanks, mom. He basically says, instead of just pulling fruit gleefully, like a sandals resort, more barbecue, please. He's going to have to work the ground. I think basically the introduction of farming, and not just any kind of farming, difficult, horrible, terrible farming. God holds them accountable. At the end of the day, we need to declare to the world, this is basically the message. You are responsible and you are accountable to God. He's not going to wink at sin. He's not going to let it go by. There's not a magic eraser somewhere. There's not a point where you can just press eject and get out of this whole system. 
You don't get to step out of line at the judgment one day. It's appointed once for men to die, and then comes the judgment. That's the belief of Christianity. And without it, the gospel is not good news. We can't peddle good news to people if they've never felt the weight of this. And it's one of the reasons that it's so hard to preach the gospel. No one likes to hear you are responsible and you are accountable. Some people will take on responsibility as long as you don't judge them for it. Hey, look, if you expect me to do this, I don't, you can't be nitpicking me and expect me to actually produce something. Other people feel like I cannot and will not answer to anyone. How dare you say what I did was right or was wrong. If what we learned about responsibility was that Adam and Eve were not robotic, what we're learning about accountability is they're not autonomous. God gets a final say and he will. He's not lazy about it. The last thing that we learn, or that we see throughout the rest of scripture about this statement and in this article is that not only are they responsible and accountable, but they are representative. And this is where things get sticky. What did we just read? Well, in many ways, we read the story of the sin of Adam and Eve. We read the fall of Adam and Eve. We read the moment that they lost communion with God. What did we read? We read when Adam and Eve were alienated from God. Can you imagine how serious he took it? If you had, by the power of the Spirit, hovering over the deep, created all of this beautiful world and said it was good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good... And then he takes sin so seriously, he says, you can't live here anymore. He drives them out of the garden. So what did we read? Well, we read the alienation of Adam and Eve. Here's the step that you must take. You cannot be a Christian without this step. At a certain point, deep down in your soul, you need to say to yourself, you know what we just read? I read my story. I fell here. Humanity lost something here. The nature of mankind fundamentally changed when sin came into the world. It absolutely changed. You died when Adam and Eve sinned. That's the message of Christianity. You died when Adam and Eve sinned. This is your story as much as it is theirs. That is the start of the gospel. In that way, they are representative. I want to show you how the Bible frames this. This is Romans chapter 5. Paul's describing sin. In chapter 6, he's going to say to them, you are a slave to sin and bring up all the things that they do. But he doesn't start there. Look at Romans chapter 5. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. This is verse 12. So sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. I'm going to go all the way down to verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, led to condemnation for all men. Do you hear this? Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. I'm going to stop there for a moment, and I'm just going to say this concept, this idea that you were born in sin. Because you were a part of the race of Adam and Eve, you have been born sinful, by nature, bent inward, selfish from the start. It's a controversial thing. 
If you said this, that people are fundamentally evil, that fundamentally they're sinful, fundamentally rebellious, fundamentally selfish, every single self-help book, psychology class and course in the world would say this is an unbelievably terrible way to look at humanity and it's wrong. We are blank slates. And yet, Scripture is so clear, in Adam we died. David writes about this. In iniquity was I conceived. This idea is fundamental to the Christian faith. Everyone is a sinner because Adam was representative of all of us. I had someone that I love very dearly in a conversation about this say, you know what, I think God exists. Yeah, I'm fine with that. And I understand like needing forgiveness for sins. But let me tell you something that's ridiculous. And I thought, well, this should be fun. I love to hear things that people think are ridiculous. They said, this original sin thing, like there's no way in the world that God would hold me accountable for something that someone else did. There's just no way. And in the course of the conversation, I basically said to them, you realize that there is no gospel if there's no representativeness. So you're saying that the sins of one person could never affect or be transferred onto the other. That the work of someone could not be credited to another's account. If that's true, we have far bigger issues than how does original sin work. If Jesus' life, his righteousness, cannot be transferred and credited to you, and if your sin cannot be credited to him, then this whole thing falls apart immediately. Adam is representative of humanity in the same way that we cling to Jesus being representative for us in his righteousness. You can't have it both ways. We are all under sin. It's why the psalmist can write in Psalm 130, this is verse 3 of Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? The rhetorical answer, of course, no one. All have sinned. Every single person. It doesn't mean that everyone sins the same. It doesn't mean that every sin has the same consequence or is the same level of grotesque. When my five-year-old punches his brother in the back of the head, just theoretically, this is just just a story, right? Theoretically, and we say to him, did you punch your brother? And he lies, full on lies through his teeth. I don't believe that has the same consequence, it's not the same level necessarily, as someone who commits atrocities and genocide. We're not trying to make we're not trying to make all sin completely just like this level sort of thing. Everyone realizes there are different consequences for sin. But just because you are not committing genocide does not mean that God is not going to hold you accountable. Everyone sins. That's the message of the Bible. I don't care how righteous the person is. Gandhi's therapist, whoever, the, like whoever helps him, like who, the best of the best and their helpers, or whoever these righteous people are, it does not matter who could stand before God if God marks iniquity. Well, he does mark iniquity, and the answer is no one can stand. Do you see how wrestling with this? What a great Father's Day sermon, right? Summer. Summertime, right? And we're just, but if you don't wrestle with this, your joy in the gospel is going to be very, very sad. It's going to seem like an add-on. I guess I'm just trying to be good. Trying to be good is very different than I was dead and I was made alive and I needed it because I'm a sinner like everyone else. There is no party 
like the sole party of a sinner forgiven. And if you never get to the point where you see yourself in your sin, you're just never going to have the authentic thing. You're just not. It's going to be imitation joy, like terrible crab meat. I had a good crab cake last week. We went to like a seafood place right on the ocean. It was like a whole new world. Like that's what this is supposed to taste like. Because I just haven't had that very often, if ever. That's the kind of joy that someone who's just going through the motions and just making it up if they've never wrestled with sin. Everyone is not only a sinner, but does sin. We are also not just sick, but dead. For a long time, there's historical debates. This guy named Pelagius in the 6th century argued a, a massive thinker who's a part of the Catholic Church named Augustine. And they wrestled over with what is the impact of sin on mankind? What exactly happened in the fall? And Augustine came up with a very helpful sort of thing to say. He said Adam and Eve were created basically with a, with a will and a moral agency that was very, very much free. They were able to sin. They were able to die. They could choose that. But they were also able, apparently, I think it could have been that the Genesis was more than a couple pages before things went south. They could have not sinned. And they could have not died. Adam and Eve legitimately could have chosen righteousness. They could have chosen sin. Free. It was possible to not sin, possible to not die, possible to sin, possible to die. What Augustine says is that all of us have been condemned because of sin. Fundamentally, the nature of who we are changed. It is no longer possible to not sin. We're born in iniquity. It is no longer possible to not die. All we have left is a nature that is bent toward sin, that is inescapably headed toward death, both by action and by nature. People have used a lot of different illustrations to describe this. One of the best that I've ever heard about the nature of who we are, how free are we, where our choices matter, is to describe a a vulture of some kind. Imagine if I had a cage on this pulpit. There's a vulture inside the cage. We've starved him for days. He's not eaten at all. And at the back of the room, we bring in and we say, like, here's a plate of carnage from the road. I collected all the squirrels from the last few days, right? Just disgusting, terrible meat, smelling, wafting, sitting there. Someone else says, I have a great idea. You know, here's the deal. This vulture, he always eats meat. I bet he just feels like it's a boring life, just trapped and eating meat all the time. I think we should give him some choices, want him to be free. So they bring in on the other side a massive, wonderful plate of gleaming spinach and lettuce. It's organic. It was raised with no pesticides, watered only by the tears of angels. It's just <laughs> perfectly pure, wonderful broccoli, lettuce, and spinach. And sets it on a plate. And then you rig up a little system so you go outside the room. Who wants to be in the room with a hungry vulture? You go outside the room and you pull a string. And you say to yourself, now, how free is this bird to do whatever he wants? How free is the bird? What can he choose? Well, some might say he's free like Adam and Eve were free. Free to eat angel tear lettuce. Free to eat the carnage of squirrels on the road. Whatever he wants to do. Of course, how many times out of a thousand is that Vulture going to go straight for squirrel all of the mode. Is that a, that a thing? 
A thousand times out of a thousand. Why? Because something fundamental in its nature draws it to this thing. What we say about sin is not just that people make mistakes every once in a while, but that bound up in the heart of all of us, something fundamentally changed in our nature. We're born into a world where we are bent toward sin, toward self. Something needs to change more than just start making better decisions. And if you start to see the problem as that deep, not just the vulture needs to take a different course in life. Did he see Food, Inc.? I mean, really. Some of these documentaries these days, he would know. If you see the gospel as we just need to get over sin by starting to make some better decisions and clean up a little bit, then you will want Jesus or be interested in him in one particular way. But if you say to yourself, wow, deep down, I need to be a whole new creature? You mean there's something inside of me that is not just making poor decisions, but is bent towards self? And you need to, be, need to be made new. And it'll change the way that you think about Jesus and what he's done. What we're describing is not a minor thing. You are not just a little bit sick, a little bit affected, a little bit broken, a little bit sad. You are dead in your sins. That's the message of Christianity. Apart from Jesus Christ, you were dead in your sins. This is how Ephesians chapter 2 says it. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I'm going to call you to the communion table in just a minute. And I want you to think just for a moment, why, why is it that right at the center of our faith did God place a picture of a broken body and shed blood? Why? To remind us again and again and again that God does not trifle with sin. It was not a small matter for God to remove sin from our lives. Not a small thing. It took the very body and bloody death of his own son to deal with sin. To make you alive, to make you a new creature was not a minor or an inexpensive thing for God. It cost him his all. This table is a wonder this table is an absolute wonder. There's a feast. We read about it earlier in Isaiah 25. There's going to be a feast where this table is just a little bit of a whisper of the meats and wines and wonder of a feast where God himself will host us. You ever want to be at a party, like elite, like an elite party? I went to something one time where there was like a list. I had to go up and give my ID and be like, yeah, I'm on the list. This is a, a party and a feast that is unlike any other, best host in the universe, there is only one box that you have to check to get here to this table. Only one box, and it goes like this. I am a sinner. This club, Christianity, is a Christian, it's a club where the only membership requirement is that you're not worth it. That you couldn't make it on your own. That no one would want you in the club. That's the only requirement. In a moment, you're going to walk down the center aisle. You're going to take bread and cup, bring it with you back to your rows. 
And I want to invite you to remember what you're doing. You're coming to a feast that has been paid for because sin matters. We are responsible. We're accountable. But even in the face of that, God made a way. And if you can say in the next few moments of everything else going on in your life, if you can say this, even with any bit of humility, God, I am unworthy. I'm unrighteous. I need to be forgiven, not because I just make a few mistakes every once in a while, but because I'm sinful. I am a sinner. My only hope is Jesus. If that's your claim, then this table is for you. And if not, if you're not there, if you're here because it's Father's Day and you love your dad, I love that. Thanks for being here for that. But if you're just kind of along for the ride, then it's no shame at all to just stay where you are. Ask God to reveal himself to you if he's not he's not clear in this particular moment. Here's the good news. Even in this absolute second, when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. Just as not lazy as he is about holding us accountable, he is 10 times more gracious and merciful and quick to run to you with forgiveness. You can find it here even in this moment. I'm going to ask the guys who are going to help me to serve to go ahead and come forward. But if you are in Jesus, then I am inviting you begging you to think about laying your life on him. God made a way for you to be forgiven. He gave his body and shed his blood for your sins. Please do come.